0: Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father covers paragraphs 1499 to 1532 What is Anointing of the Sick? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! the Son
1: and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Today, we continue part two of the Catechism, the Celebration of the Christian Mystery. We've been going through the sacraments, the sections on the sacraments. Today, we're going to cover the sacrament of anointing of the sick. It's not a very long section, so um, we might be able to enjoy the weather this evening. Um, plus, we went a little long last time, so um, this should even it all out. But anointing of the sick, uh, paragraph 1499 is where, is where we begin. This sacrament, of course, is grouped with the sacrament of confession or of penance. As um, one of the sacraments of healing, the sacrament of anointing of the sick is often, and I would say, um, is often associated with physical healing, um, it's associated with illness. And with sickness. And so in this section, the catechism deals not just with the sacrament itself, but also with illness and sickness and um, the other things surrounding it. So to uh, begin, in 1499 we have our intro paragraph as we usually do with the sacraments. It quotes um, Lumen gentium from the sacrament of um, or from the Second Vatican Council. So it kind of begins with the, the treatment of the sacrament in by the sacrament or by the Second Vatican Council. Then quickly the catechism goes into the theme of illness and sickness. Now we've talked about in the creed section especially when we talked about the fall of the human race and original sin, we talked about how suffering, illness, even death itself, is a result of the human fallen state, the human fallen condition. And so in fifteen hundred, paragraph 1500, we're reminded that illness, sickness, Limitation, finiteness are all part of the human experience. And so for Christ to be truly human, to take on our human nature, and for our Catholic faith to address what it means to be human, it almost demands that there be a sacrament that kind of addresses us in our state of illness, in our weakness. Paragraph 1501 continues this theme. It broadens it a bit. And it reminds us that even though sickness and illness and death itself are a product of our fallen human nature, of original sin, there is a good way to deal with it, and a not-so-good way to deal with it. And I think we all see this in our own experiences, is that illness brings out the best in us sometimes and the worst in us sometimes. And so the Catechism reminds us that when faced with illness, it is often our temptation to anguish or self-absorption Um, This winter, it seems that in addition to the influenza, I've had the cold a couple times. This is not unusual. I I blame it on the boiler system um, in the place that I live. And there is a sense when you're in bed, suffering, that one can become fixated on themselves. There's a self-absorption that can develop. The catechism says it can even go even further to despair or to a revolt against God. Especially as the condition is worse. But the catechism tells us that illness and suffering also can be a factor that brings the good out of us. That it can mature us. It can help us to discern in life what is really essential. One thinks of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Um, If you know his story, he was shot in the leg by a cannonball. Um, He didn't lose the leg, but the leg um, was completely shattered. They reset it. In resetting it, it was reset wrong, so they had to break it again and reset it again. But it was in his convalescence in that period that he began to to read the lives of the saints and the life of Christ. And it was there that his conversion happened. So in illness, we can also, um, kind of in facing the crisis of illness and suffering, have a, a conversion experience even. Very often illness provokes a search for God and a return to him. So 1500 and 1501, they kind of set this, this beautiful tone which the catechism has from the very beginning, which is that for the faith to be relevant in any age, but especially in this age, it has to address the human condition, what it means to be human. And that includes the sacraments. Our understanding of the sacraments especially have to, and our explanation for the sacraments, have to address what the human condition is, what it means to be human. Rather than escaping the human condition or denying the human condition. The faith gives meaning to the human condition. Then in 1502, we see the relationship of the sick person before God, especially um, in the Old Testament. There's a, a, an, um, an important couple points. First of all, it is the experience of, it, of Israel that illness is mysteriously linked to sin and evil. So we see this in the Old Testament that if someone has a disease or is sick, well, then they must have done something wrong. On the one hand, that's somewhat erroneous, we know. But on the other hand, they're searching, they're wrestling with the fact that illness and suffering and disease and even death itself are not what is meant for the human person. And that in that sense, they are a result of sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, the original sin. And even in the Old Testament, we see this in Isaiah fifty-three eleven. there is the possibility that from our suffering, from our illness, a redemptive meaning can be taken away, taken from it. That by enduring these things, and especially this suffering servant figure in Isaiah, enduring these things, good will come out of it. Then the catechism proceeds with Christ the physician. And it's this question of and we're you know we're seeing kind of uh, as we do in all the sacraments the economy of salvation so how is this sacrament pointed to in the old testament well in the old testament's dealing with suffering that's primarily how this sacrament is prepared and then now we're going to see how Christ specifically deals with this theme of suffering Again, this is preparing for the sacrament of anointing of the sick. So Christ has a, a great compassion towards the sick. We see this throughout the Gospels. That he has the power to heal, but not only just to heal, but to forgive sins. The Catechism is going to emphasize this point again and again and again. That the greatest healing that happens, Christ's greatest miracle, even, is the forgiveness of sins. So last week, we talked about the sacrament of confession as a sacrament of healing. That's the greatest healing that happens, is the forgiveness of sins. Moreover, Christ identifies with the sick. In taking on our human nature, he takes on even um, a, a very close closeness with the, with the sick. Now, we don't hear of Christ having the cold or the flu. I'm not the kind of person that likes to imagine that maybe Christ did have these things that aren't explicitly mentioned. But we do know that he experienced suffering on the, the, the way of the cross. And we certainly know that he entered into the lives of those who were sick and those who even died. Paragraph 1504 and 1505 are, um, are crucial in seeing Christ in this role as the divine physician. In fifteen oh four, and this is it bears reading, Jesus makes use of signs to heal. He often asks the sick to believe, and then he uses signs to heal. Spittle and the laying on of hands, which is Mark seven thirty two through thirty six and Mark eight twenty two through twenty five mud and washing John chapter 9 verses 6 through 7 We even see that the sick try to reach out to him to touch the hem of his garment to touch him Luke 6:19 Mark 1:41 Mark 3:10 Mark 6:56 And so in the sacraments, Christ continues to touch us in order to heal us. So those passages where Christ uses spittle, he uses mud, people reach out to him, they need to touch him, they touch the hem of his garment. These all point to the sacraments, to how the sacraments work. It's through the sacraments that we are able to touch Christ or that Christ is able to touch us. So the divine physician uses these sacramental signs in order to bring about his healing. Again, primarily the forgiveness of sins and spiritual healing. 1505, we continue, But he did not heal all the sick. His healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom. They announced a more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. So there is, you know, we hear about all these physical healings in the gospel, and they're important. And the catechism is going to talk in the next section, in the next couple paragraphs, of the importance of physical healing. So we don't want to lose the importance of physical healing. But in Christ's role as the divine physician, his greatest work of healing is what he does on the cross for our sake. His death, which leads to the forgiveness of our sins. And which gives new meaning to suffering. And it configures us by Christ's death on the cross. It configures us, it unites us in such a way that our sufferings share in his passion. So yes, Christ does do physical healing. But he didn't heal every single sick person. First of all, every single sick person ever. But all of the sick people that he encountered, he didn't heal all of them. We don't know why. But what we do know is that it, what we can say is that it points to the fact that he wasn't here to just do physical healings. Or to just do these wonderful signs. Outward signs. But that he was here to affect this internal change, this internal reality. That by his death and resurrection we may be forgiven of sins that he may come to share in our suffering and that through our suffering we share in his suffering we are united to him this is important i don't want to spoil it but you know i can't hold it back what the catechism is emphasizing is the grace the traditional understanding of the anointing of the sick which is the effect of the anointing of the sick is not physical healing, and isn't even spiritual healing. The primary grace and effect of the sacrament of anointing of of the sick is so that we might be united to Christ in our suffering and in our illness. That's the primary effect. That's the grace, the primary grace of the sacrament. We talk about healing surrounding it because it does dispose us to spiritual healing. It even can be the occasion for physical healing. But that's not the effect of the sacrament. Physical healing especially is not an effect of the sacrament of anointing of the sick. The catechism is going to explain to us when a physical healing happens, what the cause is. But you're going to have to wait and listen a few moments. To get the answer to that one But the catechism is setting it up That the divine physician Christ is this divine physician He has come to heal He identifies with the sick He uses these little signs Outward signs To bring about healing But the primary effect of his healing Is forgiveness of sin And union with him and if you think, you know, back when we were coming, when we were going over original sin and the effects of the fall, we said that the primary effect of the fall is an alienation between humans and God. This relationship is broken. From that broken relationship, there is now an alienation among humans, among the human race, especially an alienation between man and woman. There is an alienation between the human race and the rest of creation. And then there is this alienation within ourselves as humans, a conflict between our reason, our will, our passions. And death itself is a product of those of those lesser of those um, last three alienations, suffering and death and illness for that sake. The first thing that needs to be healed is the underlying condition, and that is the alienation with god, and so the divine physician first has come to fix the... He's not here to just treat side effects or, um, you know, the, the, the outward signs of the problem, the symptoms, or even the next step. He's here to fix primarily the primary problem, the first problem that is the source of all the other problems. And so the primary healing that Jesus Christ does is that he restores us in our relationship to the Father. We are united to the Father. And part of that union is that in our suffering and in our illness, we are united to the Lord. So this is, this, um, those three paragraphs are setting up the divine physician. Jesus, said, how does this... How does this doctor practice his medicine? And then in 1506 through 1510, we hear of, we might say, the ongoing mission to the sick. So we've seen this with all all of the catechism's treatment of the sacraments. First, what's the Old Testament say? Well, the Old Testament we heard about how it talks; it associates sin with suffering, etc., etc. Then we treat the what Jesus did. Well, we treated how He's the divine physician. Now it's how's this ongoing mission go? The mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Church. How does this ongoing mission of healing the sick go on? So, paragraph fifteen oh six. And, you know, I think there are, I would say, I would number about eight important points from these paragraphs. So I'll just try to kind of make these um, as, um, as succinctly as I can. First of all, about this ongoing mission to the sick. By following Christ as his disciples... We acquire a new outlook on illness and on the sick. We take on this idea of solidarity with the suffering. And we also recognize that there is a benefit to illness and to sickness. So that's the first point. We have a new attitude. As disciples of the Lord. Second, the Lord sent out his apostles and his disciples on a mystery of a ministry of compassion and healing. We hear that they were sent out. Even in the life of Christ, the disciples were sent out. So they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Paragraph one, it's, uh, or the uh, footnote is 115. It's Mark 6:12 through13. Even in the um, gospels itself, the apostles and are anointing with oil, the sick. So the sacrament, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, it's one of the few sacraments that were already being done even before Christ's death and resurrection. That they're going out and they're anointing people, anointing the sick. Now, it doesn't have its effectiveness, of course, until Christ's death and resurrection. But they're nonetheless anointing the sick. Point three, the risen Lord renews this mission, this mission of compassion and healing. At the end, especially at the end of Mark, he sends the apostles out in his great commission that they would go out and heal. It's part of the great commission. So the catechism, interesting enough, is... um, is not de-emphasizing the importance of physical healing. Because there is is this sense, it's an erroneous sense, that physical healing is something that just happened in the Gospels. Jesus did it, and maybe some of the Acts of the Apostles, and the Acts of the Apostles, and then it was finished. The Catechism isn't, isn't dismissing that physical healings are still part of the mission of the church. It's part of the great commission. It's hard for us to kind of dismiss, you know, the possibility of physical healing still com- still happening when it's actually part of the great commission, it's part of what we're supposed to be about and doing. Number 4 I may have lost a point, but we'll keep going with some sort of a number system. The Holy Spirit gives to some a special charism of healing. So as to make manifest the power of the grace of the risen Lord, but even the most intense prayers do not always obtain the healing of illness. If someone is healed... It's because the Lord has given the person that's prayed for them. You know, if if they're healed because someone has prayed for them. It's because that person has the charism of healing. The Lord's given that person the charism of healing. So in the sacrament of anointing of the sick, and we're going to see this, there's a part of it where the priest lays his hands on the person, on their head, to invoke the Holy Spirit upon the person. Um, And then after that, there's a a bit of a prayer, and then he anoints the person. If a physical healing happens after that, it's not because of the sacrament. The sacrament's primary effect is to unite that person in their suffering to Christ. It's also, we're going to hear, the sacrament is to invoke the Holy Spirit upon the person that the Holy Spirit might unite them to Christ in their suffering. If a physical healing happens, it's because the priest has the charism of healing. The catechism is saying that here in 1508. Thomas Aquinas, if you don't want to accept the catechism, Thomas Aquinas says the same thing. point five, and that the, suffer, the sufferings to be endured can mean that in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction in the sake of his body, that is the church. The catechism is explaining to us that, okay, in a lot of cases, maybe we might even say most of the cases Where someone prays for healing for someone Nothing happens Both inside the sacrament of anointing of the sick When the priest lays his hands on people And outside, you know, when we pray for people for healing Most of the time, it doesn't appear that healing happens Why? Why is it that healing doesn't happen all the time? It is so that in our sufferings, we may share in Christ's sufferings and add to the infinite redemptive value of his suffering. It's not that Paul is adding because Christ is lacking. It's that we're adding to the infinite. Point six, this is in 1509. So 1508 is the big paragraph on the charism of healing. We should mention, and that I want to mention just on 1508 again, the sentence in the middle of the, of the paragraph. But even the most intense prayers do not always obtain the healing of all illnesses. We, should, we are reminded that it's not by our effort that healing happens. It's Christ who heals. Then in, in 1509, um, what I would say is point six, the church has received this charge to heal the sick from the Lord. And she strives to carry it out by taking care of the sick as well as by accompanying them with her prayers and intercession. So part of that great commission to heal the sick, we've talked about how it's it's lived on through um, the um, ongoing mission of the church, through the exercise of the charism of healing, within the sacrament of anointing of the sick or outside of the sacrament of anointing of the sick. So the the exercise of this charism of healing is one way in which that we fulfill the Great Commission. The church's care and concern accompanying the sick through health care, through ministering to the sick is another way that we accomplish that task of the Great Commission. And our prayer and intercession, which we ultimately... You know, again, if there's effectiveness, there's a charism. There's quite likely a charism of healing. But certainly at every Mass and at our liturgy, the hours, and even in our daily prayer, we pray for the sick that they might know healing. So those are the three ways in which we live this Great Commission through actual physical healing, through the charism through accompanying people in our charity, our health care, and then in our daily prayer and intercession for the sick. But then there's also a fourth way that we assist the sick. This is point number seven, but it's a fourth way that we The Church believes in the life giving presence of Christ, the physician of souls and bodies. This presence is particularly active through the sacraments and is an altogether special way through the Eucharist. It's through the Eucharist also that this great commission to heal the sick is fulfilled. And then in 1510 the catechism ends this particular section on healing of the sick with the reference to James to the letter of James 123 or excuse me it's footnote 123 but it's James 5 chapter 5 14 through 15 which talks about the institution of the sacrament of anointing or at least the exercise of the sacrament of anointing of the sick James says as any among you sick let him call for the elders the presbyters From which we get the, Greek, the English word priest Of the church and let them pray over him Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord And the prayer of faith will save the sick man And the Lord will raise him up And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Then, having started with this this quote from James, the catechism then kind of focuses on the sacrament of the sick, anointing as the sacrament of the sick. And this is in particular the development of the church's understanding and use of this sacrament. So first... We're reminded that, you know, um, the, the Council of Trent defined this as one of the seven sacraments. This has been from ancient time, from the, tra- you know, the tradition, that this has always rec- been recognized as one of the seven sacraments. From ancient times, this practice always used blessed oil... But it was more and more exclusively reserved to the point of death. So it seems that at the beginning, at least from what we hear from James, that it it was used rather broadly for anyone who was severely sick. But as the centuries went on, it was reserved more and more for those near death or approaching death. for much of its history it's been referred to as extreme unction so anointing at the end basically is kind of a an easy way of understanding what extreme unction means at the second vatican council there was a call to renew this sacrament in its broader usage For those who are seriously ill, not just those at the point of death. So we've had, this is sort of brief in three paragraphs, the development of the sacrament. Next, the catechism says, who receives and who administers this sacrament? First of all, um, any of the faithful who begin to be in danger of death from sickness or old age. In danger of death from sickness or old age. So, if we're at a point in our life where we're diagnosed with something that is definitely, there's a danger of death because of this, then we should be anointed. Or if we've reached a certain age where death Seems quite likely. Then, then it's it's worth getting anointed. In paragraph five fifteen, the Catechism kind of um, specifies this a little bit more because that can be quite vague, you know. First of all, um, someone can be anointed in the case. Of another grave illness, they can receive this sacrament again. So, so for instance, you're in this danger of death. You're in um, an old, you know, this state of old age where death is, is quite likely. Um, you pass out of that grave illness. Well, then you can be anointed again if you go back into another grave illness. You know, we've, I've seen um, youth... You know, of course, you have to be over the age of reason to be anointed, to receive anointing of the sick. So you had to have made your first communion in order to receive anointing of the sick. Um, But I've seen, you you know, children, teenagers be anointed and pull through it, you know, recover from whatever it was. Um... And I would expect at some point towards the end of their life, they'll need to, be, to receive anointing of the sick again. So you can receive it multiple times throughout your life. Second, the Catechism says in 1515, or if one's during the same illness, the same grave illness that you were diagnosed with, the condition becomes more serious. So you know, a classic example: um, a person is diagnosed with, say, skin cancer. They're anointed. Well, then that skin cancer spreads to another organ. And I, you know, I don't know where where skin cancer spreads to or not. So you know, I'm no oncologist by any, any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, if, if the disease progresses, if it gets worse, then you can be anointed again and should be anointed again. Number three, or it is fitting to receive the anointing of the sick just prior to a serious operation. So if, there, if you're going to be you know, they say serious operation. Some might say, um, if you're going under general anesthesia for a considerable length of time, then, or if there's a possibility that you could die on the table, then that this warrants being anointed. Or fourth, the same holds for the elderly who... Frailty becomes more pronounced. So at some point um, in decline, if you keep declining, which you will, that's how it that's how it happens. Um, one can be anointed again. So we keep in mind. I think the general point is: is it should be pretty serious why we're anoint, you know why we're anointed. And one can be anointed more than once, even within a given illness. In paragraph 1516, we're reminded only priests, bishops and presbyters, are ministers of anointing of the sick. James tells us, you know, in, in his letter that it's the presbyters who do this. The faithful should encourage the sick to call for a priest to receive this sacrament. So you know, there used to be a time when we ran Catholic hospitals, um, rather than Catholic hospitals running from us. It would seem um, there was a time when we ran Catholic hospitals, and you, or in general, even you know, public hospitals or private hospitals, where they would call the priest and say such and such is in. But of course we know that they can't do that now. Or if you don't know that, here's, here's what you learned today, you know, in catechism classes. If you go to the hospital, even if you tell them when you go in that you're Catholic, or that you're a parishioner at this parish, or that you even want to see a priest, that message is not going to get relayed. It's not going to get relayed. The, your pastor's not going to find out. Probably no priest is going to find out. If you, you need to train your family to call the priest, or you call the priest yourself before you go to the hospital, you know, if it's anticipatory, you know, like, I've got surgery, I'm going to go into surgery, or you stop him after Mass before you go to the hospital, or you, like I said, train your family to call the priest if you're, if you're in the hospital. Tell them that, you know, write it, write it down on a big envelope, you know, um, somewhere so they get the message. Because we can't rely on the hospital system, even if it's the best hospital in the universe, you know. And they, you know, they give you cotton candy every day. They're still not going to tell the priest that you can't presume they're going to tell the priest that you're there. So, this is, um, this is the issue. But we should, if we're facing a serious illness, if we've been diagnosed with something serious, we should talk to our priest. We should ask him to anoint us. We can, you know, it's not very long. I, I mean, it takes like five minutes. Now, the catechism will say there are other things that we need to do along with anointing of the sick when we're in these situations. Among them, the sacrament of confession. And so I would say that as soon as you have an appointment, as soon as you have a diagnosis, meet with your priest. Tell him what's going on. Ask him to hear your confession and have him anoint you. It's usually better with an appointment because if you flag him after the mass he might not be able to hear your confession but you really we the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of anointing of the sick they're like tag team wrestling part, um, partners they have to wrestle together you know on the same team of course we want them both how is this sacrament celebrated if, if circumstances suggest it, the celebration of the sacrament can be preceded by the sacrament of penance and followed by the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's the, it's the trifecta. We want confession, anointing, communion, or Eucharist. Confession, anointing, communion. Even in this serious illness when you're in the hospital room or, you know, if you're going into surgery or you're coming out of surgery or you get a worse diagnosis. Generally, there is um, a prayer in silence. The priest lays his hands on the person. Then they pray over them in, faith, in the faith of the church The catechism tells us this is the epiclesis If you remember our vocabulary word Epiclesis is an invocation of the Holy Spirit When the priest calls down the Holy Spirit Every sacrament has an epiclesis And then the, um, the priest anoints the person with oil blessed by the bishop, if possible, anointing them on the forehead and in the palm of their hands. The catechism then tells us the effects. So we've talked about already the outward sign of the sacrament, the laying on of hands and the anointing on the forehead and the hands with um, holy oil, We've talked about how the sacrament is instituted by Christ, how it was prepared in the Old Testament, how Christ is the divine physician, and we've even seen evidence of how it was practiced even as James testifies in his letter. Now we talk about the, the, gra- the graces of the sacrament. Outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Number one... The number one... This, I almost feel like... A, what was that family feud? You know, our most pop, the most popular answer. Number one, the effects of the sacrament. A particular gift of the Holy Spirit. A particular gift of the Holy Spirit. The first grace of this sacrament is one of strengthening peace and courage to overcome the difficulties that go with the condition of serious illness or the frailty of old age. So first, the Holy Spirit is poured upon us. The first grace is the Holy Spirit is poured upon us to strengthen us, to give us peace and courage to face our difficulties, to overcome our difficulties. It strengthens us against temptation... It renews our trust and faith. The Holy Spirit does. I should say He does. The Holy Spirit renews our trust and faith. He strengthens us against the temptations of the evil one, a temptation to discouragement or anguish. The assistance from the Lord by the power of the Spirit is meant to lead the sick person to healing of the soul But also of the body, if such is God's will. Again, through the charism, this particular priest is being used by the Lord to bring healing to this person. Furthermore, if he has sins, he will be forgiven. We're reminded of James. So the sacrament of anointing of the sick forgives venial sins. If there are mortal sins, we need to confess those. However, um, most priests, if you're unable to confess, say you're you know, in some state where it's not possible to make a confession, usually a priest will give general absolution in those situations. So say you, have, you, know, you can't speak or you're you're out for you know a coma or whatnot. The priest can give absolution, or when you are able to later, you could go to the sacrament of confession. But it's not the um, it, the sacrament of anointing of the sick is not an ordinary means by which mortal sins are forgiven that's the sacrament of confession. Number 2, then num- um, number 2, now that's a lot of grace in, you know, it's all this wonderful stuff that the holy spirit's doing. But it's essentially to get over our situation, to endure our situation by the strength of the holy spirit. That's the first, that's the first grace of this sacrament The second grace is union with the passion of Christ. The person receives the strength and the gift of uniting himself more closely to Christ's passion. And so, therefore, we share in Christ's redemptive passion. The suffering, a consequence of original sin, acquires a new meaning and becomes a participation in the saving work of Jesus. So that suffering whatever it is that I'm going through Christ is enduring that on the cross. And therefore because of this union that I have with Christ on the cross my suffering has infinite value. It saves souls. It can save souls and so we can of course offer that up for people and say lord i want this suffering to go in, you know to this this person in my life who needs you know needs a miracle or needs healing or needs forgiveness or needs you know conversion or this person who's in purgatory the third Effect of this sacrament is an ecclesial grace. The sick person who receives this sacrament by being united to Christ's passion and death is also united to the church, to the people of God, and builds up the grace of the church. We talked last week, or at least in the last sacrament, on indulgences, and there's this church, the church's treasury of grace. Every little suffering that we endure united to Christ, it gets, that grace gets banked into that infinite treasury. So we're building up the church in our suffering. But we're also united to the saints in our suffering. The saints are with us because of this sacrament. And then the fourth effect of this sacrament is that it prepares us for our final journey. And it's right after the Catechism talks about this, it ends the section on anointing of the sick by talking about viaticum, the last sacraments of the Christian life. We talk about viaticum as food for the journey. We mentioned that in the Eucharist. The Catechism references it multiple times in this sacrament on anointing of the sick. And that is the Eucharist, when we receive it on our deathbed, is this food for our journey of passing over into the promised land, into eternal life. And then the Catechism talks about really this sort of trifecta, the trifecta, confession, anointing of the sick, viaticum, communion. But that's what we want. To lead this world with. In 1525, thus, just as the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist form a unity, which we call the sacraments of Christian initiation, those three get us into this life, into this world. So it can also be said that penance, anointing of the sick, and the Eucharist, as viaticum, constitute the end of Christian life, the sacraments that prepare us for our heavenly homeland. And thus the catechism ends on the section of anointing of the sick. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all.
0: This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit SaintGabrielRadio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.